You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. It's not the way I would choose to begin to tell a story with a long list of 42 names divided into three sections, each one 14 generations long. What a way to lose your audience, right? In part, I chose to read those verses from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel from the new First Nations translation of the New Testament because the long list of names in Matthew's genealogy is, I confess, mind-numbing to listen to. And don't trust my pronunciations either. I did my best. So many strange-sounding names we don't recognize. I wouldn't blame you for pulling out your phones to scroll through social media or to check on the World Cup scores. The First Nations version is what is called a dynamic equivalent translation, one that seeks to convey a thought-for-thought understanding of the text and not necessarily a word-for-word translation. And in keeping with many indigenous peoples' traditions, the translation adopts the native naming practices of using the meanings of names and places in its translation. And with this shift, those ancient foreign-sounding names suddenly take on new life, don't they? From the familiar Abraham, named the father of many nations, and Isaac, named he who made us laugh, to the ones we may not remember so well, Manasseh, he made them forget. Now at this point, we may pause and ask, now what did he make them forget? We might do a quick search, find his story, and discover that Manasseh ruled for 55 years. And during that time, he restored the polytheistic worship of Baal and Asherah. He built altars in the temple itself to these other gods. He gets such a scathing review in the 21st chapter of 2 Kings, the writer proclaims he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Now, suddenly... That long list of names starts to come alive a little bit, doesn't it? The genealogy, I think, is in some sense Matthew's way of letting us know who Jesus' people are. It's situating Jesus' story into a larger story, one of the history of Israel and to the larger work of God in the world. So while we may want to skip over all those strange names and get on with what we think is the real story, Matthew wants us to wander, 
wander in the groves of the ancient ones, to consider their complicated stories, and to carry them with us into the good news of the Jesus story. The genealogy begins with the patriarchs, the father of many nations, Abraham, and immediately we are reminded that the God of Israel is in this meandering, twisted story that is the Hebrew scriptures. And that God of Israel often relishes in upending conventional expectations. So Abraham, the father of many nations, if we are to recall his story, is two times a coward. Remember, he hides behind his wife. He pretends to be her brother rather than her husband. And in his cowardice, he puts her at risk in order to save himself. What a patriarch, eh? Firstborn sons, traditionally the inheritors of wealth and influence, are hard to find in this genealogy in Matthew's gospel. Ishmael and Esau, they are not here. Instead, their younger brothers, Isaac, he made us laugh, and Jacob, the heel grabber, are both here in this tangled family tree. Jacob, clearly a mama's boy, slips through life tricking everyone. His frail father, his burly brother, his conniving uncle, he's the one whose stories would be told for comic effect around the Thanksgiving table. Oh, remember Uncle Jacob? Remember that time when he dressed up like his brother and he made his trademark stew and he tricked Grandpa Isaac into giving him his brother's birthright, his blessing? That scoundrel. Strange, though, that spoiled baby boy Joseph with his fancy coat doesn't make it in here. Instead, it's his older brother Judah, fourth of the brothers. Judah, who convinced their other brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. He's in this family tree. The first section of the family tree moves through the patriarchs into the time of judges and prophets and ends with the great chief, much-loved one, David, who was himself an overlooked son, you might remember, who becomes king over all Israel. These are Jesus' peeps, Matthew tells us. And now, as we reach the lofty heights of this family tree with King David, the genealogy moves through the halls of kings from well-known names such as Solomon to less familiar monarchs, Abijah and Asa. And here it's the story of de decline and disappointment. From possessing the land of promise to being led away into Babylon, the village of confusion. And of all the monarchs that are listed between David and the exile, only two, only two were considered faithful. The rest are just a rogues gallery of scoundrels. They're idolaters, murderers, corrupt to the core despots, and concubine collectors. The most complex of these kings was, of course, David himself, wasn't it? 
beloved of God, melodious saint, and infuriating sinner who wedded religion and military might for an impressive consolidation of power in Jerusalem for himself. Matthew wants us to know that these are Jesus' people. Then as the demise of the monarchy concludes the second section, the third gallery of the family tree starts to change direction. The biblical scholar Raymond Brown calls this section the unknown and the unexpected. After the first three names, we have names of folks we really don't know anything about whose stories were never written down, who somehow kept the story of God going from generation to generation, finally ending with Joseph and with Mary. Mary. Now, she's the fifth woman in this family tree. Rather, she is the fifth woman mentioned by name in Matthew's account of the genealogy of Jesus, The others mentioned are Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth in the first section of the genealogy, and Bathsheba in the second, although Bathsheba is not named, but referred to by her first husband's name, Uriah. Now, the inclusion of these women has long been a point of interpretation. Scholars try to look for similarities among the women. For example, the four have in common an outsider status. They were either Gentiles or associated with Gentiles. Tamar was an Aramean, Rahab a Canaanite, Ruth a Moabite, and Bathsheba was the wife of a Hittite. For years, it was common to paint these women as sinners with sexual scandals, focusing on those scandals in and saying that they were included in the genealogy to simply underscore Jesus' work of liberation from sin. Tamar is caught in a patriarchal system of marriage in which her worth is determined by her children. And after the deaths of her worthless husbands, look it up, she is mistreated by her father-in-law. And through scheming, she becomes pregnant and has a child. Left with few choices, Tamar plays the part of a prostitute to find justice for herself. And in doing so, she exposes the hypocrisy and the sins of the patriarch, her own father-in-law, Judah. The second woman, Rahab, is a prostitute, comes into the lineage oddly in the wrong century and without precedent in other historic retellings of the lineage of David. And I think that might be a clue to us careful readers that this genealogy is more theological than historical. And it's a call for us to pay attention to the themes that we uncover here. Rahab is an outsider. She's a Canaanite who sides with the invading Hebrews. She risks her life to provide shelter and crucial information to the Hebrew scouts planning an attack on her city, and she aids the Israelites in their conquest. Ruth? Well, Ruth is a widow and an outsider who follows the wily schemes of her mother-in-law, Naomi, and in a very risque scene, puts herself in a compromising position, which ultimately leads to her marriage 
to Boaz. Her brazen acts to, to seduce Boaz lead to her rescue from her poverty and the poverty of her mother-in-law, Naomi. You see, the two widows had been left to fend for themselves. Their male relations up to this point have ignored their duties to take in the women, disregarding the Torah's clear commands to care for widows and for orphans. The fourth woman, Bathsheba, is a married woman. She's a victim of David's lust. Her husband is killed by David's order. She loses her child, and yet she and David will ultimately have a second son, Solomon, who will become king. Matthew did not need to include her, but he does so intentionally and names her by her husband, not by her own name, so that we cannot look away from the complicated story that is the story of David. For David is heralded as beloved of God and is brought down by his own weaknesses. His story ends in a tragedy worthy of King Lear. Now, in many interpretations of Matthew's genealogy, these women are singled out and labeled as sinful because of these sexual scandals, which, of course, conveniently overlooks the actions and the misdeeds of so many of the males in the very same genealogy. These women break the pattern of father to son, and their stories are all tragic ones, yes, but they are stories of women whose actions serve not only to continue the workings of God's liberating story, but also to point straight to the failures and the hypocrisies of the men in the genealogy. These are Jesus' people. Here are the roots of the good news of Jesus, Matthew tells us, with roots deep in the stories of Hebrew ancestors. And guess what Matthew does? He just flings open the closet and the skeletons come tumbling out. Saints and sinners, the famous and the unknown, the crooked and the kind-hearted, some noble and more than a few with the stench of scandal, all of them play a role. God, working through their choices and their mistakes, is always seeking out the very best in every circumstance. Each one of them is part of this grand story of Jesus. Matthew begins with this long line of names with histories known and unknown, not to bore us to tears, but to open up an invitation to us. To be Jesus' peoples too. Now the holiday season is upon us. We barely made it out of Thanksgiving. And now the rush to Christmas is on. And with that rush come the pressures. The pressures to create a perfect holiday. We are barraged on every side by advertisements. Promising that if we act now... We can buy the perfect Christmas gift. 
We can set the most amazing holiday table. We can create the picture-perfect Christmas tree. We can win the coveted award for the best holiday yard decorations in Rowan County. But we know, deep in our bones, how shallow those claims are, don't we? Perfect holidays are for fairy tales and Hallmark movies. Despite all of our efforts, we know our lives are far from perfect. Our families fractured. Our communities suffering. Even if the decorations on the outside proclaim the best of Christmas cheer, we know, don't we? Which is why on this first Sunday of Advent, beginning with Matthew's genealogy is good news for us, my friends. Despite its perfect symmetry, even with the inclusion of heralded names of old, as we look, the cracks begin to show. And through those cracks, the light of the sacred appears. Not in perfection but in our humanness. It is into this human family, with all of its brokenness and pain, that Jesus is born. Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one whom the prophet declared to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. Later in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus creates a stir, as he is apt to do, it's a public spectacle, and his family comes to bring him home. And when Jesus is told that his mother and brothers are there, he replies, Who's my mother? And who are my brothers? And then he stops. And he points to the disciples, to all those who have been following, and he says, Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, genealogies and pedigrees don't matter in the end. For Emmanuel, God with us, has broken into this story. And once again, God is at work creating a new thing. This Advent, we'll be telling stories. Stories of Jesus' people. And we will find that our stories are woven into a larger sacred narrative. So welcome to God's grand and glorious story. No matter who you are, no matter who you long to be, know this. There is room for you in this story too. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church where you are.